You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 31, we have a real study in contrasts. Uh, Luke, after the temptation of Christ in the wilderness at during 40 days at the hands of the devil, records Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown village of Nazareth, reading from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, and proclaiming himself to be the messianic figure prophesied therein. Of course, the people in Nazareth rejected uh, the identity of Christ, ultimately desiring to kill him and to take uh, his life. And so in the next scene that Luke records, there is a bit of contrast in the sense that Jesus goes to not his hometown, but his now adopted hometown, the town of Capernaum, and again preaches in the synagogue on another Sabbath. And at this moment, there are many mighty works that are done in this particular town. It's interesting at least to note that because the Gospels record for us that Jesus could do no mighty work in Nazareth because of the unbelief that pervaded there. And so when you go to Capernaum and you see many mighty works performed in Capernaum, you understand that there must have been an element of faith that had been growing and burgeoning within that town and city. And so the Lord does many miraculous works there in this particular town, a real epicenter for his ministry, many of his disciples coming uh, from that town and from that region. But the other thing to notice here in the verses that we'll study today are simply that this is a unique day in the life of Christ. And in other words, the gospel writers give us great attention to this particular 24-hour period of time. Probably not because it was a prototypical day, although there are many elements that are very typical to the life of Christ, but probably because this was a magnificent day where the glory of Christ was revealed in great power and Probably a great word for this text would be authority. And so it says in verse 31, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, which basically was the custom of Christ. And interestingly enough, became the custom of at least Paul the Apostle in the early church era to go into a town, find the synagogue or the gathering of the Jewish people and expound to them from the scripture that Jesus is the Messiah that they'd waited for and to preach that gospel message to them. And so here Jesus on the Sabbath goes to uh, the synagogue there in Capernaum uh, for teaching and preaching. Now, Capernaum is one of those northernmost cities in Israel at the time of Christ, a port city, so to speak. It had a large fishing industry there on the right on the coast of the, the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. And really, 
when you think about it in terms of what Jesus was doing, a great and strategic geographic location, because it would sort of be and act as that final outpost for the people of Israel to go to. And then sort of launching from there, you'd be going into uh, the Gentile world. And so you can imagine that as Jesus worked many mighty works in Capernaum, the word of Jesus would, of course, travel to other Israelite towns and Jewish towns, but also the word of Christ would travel into Gentile regions as well, which of course would be preparatory for the time that the church would expand and begin preaching that gospel message. There'd be a little bit of readiness perhaps in some of these towns because they had already heard of the word of Christ. And so he goes to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, teaching on the Sabbath And it says in verse 32 that they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. There was just a power in the word of Jesus, an authority in the word of Jesus. Now, it tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the people were astonished at the authority with which Jesus taught in contrast to the way that the religious uh, leaders taught during that time and that era. He was teaching with authority and not as their scribes. And one of the things that probably led to this great authority is that Jesus was not content to simply quote rabbi after rabbi, scholar after scholar. No, Jesus wanted to actually simply boldly declare the truth of God's word. We discover when he goes to Nazareth, Isaiah 61 is his text. When he is tempted in the wilderness, Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 serve as his texts. Uh, When he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, the Old Testament is littered all throughout his message. In other words, much of his authority came from his willingness to simply declare the simple truth of God's word. There was nothing overly complex about it, there was an authority in the truth of it, the simpleness of it, the word of God focus about it. But also, there must have been an authority because, well, as he'd read there in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord had anointed him for these things. And so the Spirit was upon him, in one sense, empowering him for this work. But also, there must have been an authority in the word of Jesus, quite simply because of the way in which he spoke, a purity within his heart. If there was ever a preacher, I mean, the the only preacher who could ever have, have delivered a teaching or a sermon coming from a place of absolute sinlessness. So a purity, a zeal, his personage would have greatly influenced the message and the authority with which he spoke. And so just the word of Christ, so powerful, so real, so strong. And so that day as he was preaching, it says that in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit, verse 33, of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, verse 34, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so Jesus is there teaching, 
And as he's teaching in the synagogue, this quiet town there in Capernaum, a beautiful setting, a beautiful place on earth. And as he's teaching, a demon-possessed man, a man with an unclean demon, Luke records, stands up and interrupts that time of teaching. And he declares to Jesus, under inspiration of this demon, he declares to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Notice that fear within the demon. Have you come to destroy us? And uh, it's very clear later that he's not saying that within this one man are a multitude of demons when he uses the word us, but because he says I in just a moment, so I know this, but uh, that he's representing the demonic species, basically saying, have you come to destroy all of us demons? And there was actually another question that was asked when Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee and went to the region of Gadara. There were two demon possessed men there. One of them filled with a demon called Legion, for there were actually many inside of him. And they said, have you come to destroy us before the time? So there was a consciousness within this demonic realm. They knew who Jesus was, and they knew that he would destroy them. And that was the fear of what was happening here. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And so quite the interruption there at this particular moment in the middle of this service. Now, I think there's probably two extremes that we might go to. One would be to say and to think that every single day in Jesus's life or, or public ministry, he was casting out demons, that there were basically just millions of people walking around Israel at the time under the influence of demons, possessed by demons. And that probably would be an improper conclusion to come to because Luke seems to be giving us an instance here on this particular day where he cast out this demon. And then at the end of the day, a powerful, supernatural, miraculous, glorious day where he casts out many demons. And then through the rest of his gospel, a handful of other demons that he'll deal with. And Luke doesn't make it seem as if it was an every single day occurrence in the ministry and life of Christ. But on the other hand, we don't want to minimize this either and act as if this was something that was extremely rare. So the demonic realm, they came out and they were, you know, present as Jesus presented uh, himself. The light of Christ was drawing out and exposing the darkness uh, there in Israel at the time. Now, personally, I believe with many others and hold that most conservative view that uh, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 describe for us the fall of Satan, who was a cherub in heaven due to the pride within his heart. And personally, I do think that there's a good possibility, at least, that the Revelation 12 description that the dragon drew one third of the stars down from heaven with him is a glimpse into the reality that a third of the angelic realm uh, rebelled with the devil. And so we'll find out exactly what occurred. The Bible really isn't a history of the devil. The Bible is a, a history of the redemption of mankind. It's about Jesus redeeming a lost and broken uh, mankind. 
But it's very obvious that there is such a thing as the demonic realm. Jesus believed it. Jesus didn't see these as just mere psychological sicknesses or something like that. The apostles didn't feel that way. And Luke, this physician and doctor, clearly felt that there was a difference between those who were sick and those who were uh, demon-possessed or oppressed or influenced. And so the demonic realm comes out. I think it's worth mentioning, at least at this point, uh, that if you're a believer in Christ, it is impossible to be demonically possessed. Uh, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not share his residence with an unclean spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that's an impossibility. Uh, but the presence of the demonic realm, Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. The presence of the demonic realm is very real. So here, this demonic realm is exposed through the preaching of Christ. But notice in verse 35, it says, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. There is no struggle here. This would be inaccurately defined as an exorcism because there's no work. Jesus isn't even really, you know, going through some kind of earnest prayer at this point or anything like that. No, he's prayed up. He's ready to go. And his presence, of course, is more magnificent and greater uh, than the presence of this demon. And the demonic realm would be subservient to Christ. And so he just simply says, be silent and come out of him. By the way, I love the calmness with which Jesus operates. I mean, I don't know how loud he spoke at this point, but I just love that in a, a rather crazy kind of moment, I mean, just imagine being there in the synagogue and listening to Jesus teach. You're just enraptured with the words that he's speaking and the power and the authority with which he's speaking. And then all of a sudden, everything is interrupted and comes to a grinding, screeching halt because a demon-possessed man begins to cry out, perhaps even with a, an altered, demonic-sounding kind of voice, and begins to speak to Jesus, cry out to Jesus. And I just love, I don't know, I might have run away at that moment in fear and terror, but Jesus stands in the face of that kind of scene, and he just simply ministers to the man and silences this demon. He is more powerful than that demonic realm. Game over. The contest uh, is no contest, and Jesus wins. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed, verse 36, and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports of him went out into every place in the surrounding regions. And so we see here a glimpse into the power of Christ over uh, the demonic realm. And so just to understand and know that for all that is happening in the spiritual unseen realm, Jesus is stronger. Jesus uh, made a public spectacle over principalities and powers of darkness there on the cross. Jesus is victorious over them and one day will completely vanquish them when he throws them into the uh, lake of fire, which of course Revelation tells us was prepared for the devil and uh, his demonic uh, realm. So at this point, the word of Jesus began to spread throughout uh, the region 
on that day. Now, later in the day, Jesus left the synagogue and he went to the house of Simon Peter. It says that he arose, verse 38, and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. So a couple of things to mention at this point. First of all, uh, we have to notice that there seems to have been some type of pre-existent relationship between Jesus and Peter, who is this Simon. He's sometimes called Simon, sometimes called Peter, sometimes called Simon Peter. It's all the same man throughout scripture. And so even before it appears, Jesus called Peter to follow him and to, you know, be his disciple. It appears that there was some type of pre-existent relationship that they had uh, together. The other thing to notice, of course, is that Peter was a married man. He had a mother-in-law. That means he was a married man. So good for us to understand and good for us to know he did not live a single life. He was a married man. But then what you have here is that his mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. Now we might not be able to as readily relate to demonic possession, but I'm sure that we can all relate to, you know, experiencing a high fever. Uh, just the pain of it, the agony of it, the hurt of it, the aches of it, you know, where the smallest, most menial tasks cause great pain and great difficulty. Just zapping all of your energy, sometimes even taking away the simple ability to even cry out to God. You feel so fatigued and so tired. And notice here that she has this high fever and they, not she, but they appealed to him on her behalf. Whether she was unable to intercede for herself or not, we don't know. But they did intercede for her. They went to Jesus and appealed to him on her behalf, which of course is a wonderful and beautiful picture of prayer, to pray for those who we need to intercede for. And uh, there's never any way that anyone can stop us from bringing them to Christ in prayer. And so he stood, verse 39, over her and rebuked the fever and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And so Jesus goes, and he stands over Peter's mother-in-law. And in a way very similar to the way that he would deal with the demonic realm, he stands over her and rebukes the fever, and it leaves her. And it leaves her so completely and so forcefully that Luke records that she then rose and began to serve them. In other words, there was no recovery period. She didn't have to rehydrate. She didn't have to recover. There was no day or two of weakness. You know, the fever is gone, but I'm now still kind of rallying my strength. No, she was completely well. And I think Luke is probably fascinated by that as a physician, just seeing the complete and total healing that Christ conducts. And just the way in which Jesus works inside of our lives, he's not looking to do anything partial or anything halfway. He wants to get all the way into the infrastructure of who we are and deal with absolutely everything. And so what a beautiful picture uh, of this woman, though. She experiences a wonderful miracle from the Lord. 
And she rises up and her heart is a heart of thankfulness. Lord, what can I do to say thank you for what you have done for me? That is the best way to serve the Lord, just a motive of gratefulness within our hearts. And I know for me, the more that I understand the grace of the Lord, the grace of God, what the Lord has done for me, the great mercy of the Lord, the more thankful I become within my heart and I want to serve him. As Paul told Titus, we proclaim the grace of God, which produces ultimately a people who are zealous for good works. Now, when the sun was setting there in the house, they're there all day, all afternoon. And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So when the sun is setting, that means that the Sabbath is now over with and people are able to travel freely. And once they could travel freely without any kind of distance limitations, they rushed upon this home. And the Lord came out and everyone who was sick, and Luke goes to great pains to give us a description of that. All who had any who were sick, Jesus put hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus blessed them. Jesus touched them. Jesus healed them. And again, this is a powerful day. And in one sense, a unique day in the life of Christ. But then secondly, verse 41 all of the demons, Jesus silenced them and dealt with them. A very powerful uh, kind of reality. And, you know, we might ask the question, why would Jesus silence them? Because there they are saying, you are the son of God. What they were saying was completely accurate. But I think we have, of course, the case of the right message coming from the wrong messenger. And so these demons needed to be silenced because they really shouldn't have been Jesus's advertising committee. And you might remember that when the religious leaders tried to come up with an accusation against Jesus, at least early on, one of the things that they came up with is they said, it's by the power of the devil that you are casting out these demons. And so Jesus silences these demons and deals with them. So we're just confronted here on this day with the authoritative word of Jesus. Just on a personal note, I know that for me, when I rise in the morning and wake up, you know, some days more than others, but there are many competing voices and thoughts within my mind and heart. There are fears, of course, there are concerns, there are worries, there are conflicts and battles and obstacles. There is pride and insecurity. There is self-absorption and different things like that. And one of the beautiful things is for me in my life, at least, is to just simply sit before the Lord with the early parts of my day and to open up my Bible and to pour out my heart to the Lord and in his word to allow the word of Christ to silence all of those other voices and to simply allow the word of Jesus to be the predominant authoritative word within uh, my life and within my heart. And so here Jesus, just the incredible authority with which he spoke, just great power. Now, it says in verse 42 that when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. 
So what you have here is the next morning, all right? So basically Sunday morning. Uh, Mark tells us that it was early in the day, a great while before daylight. And Mark tells us that the disciples went and found Jesus. And then Luke here records for us that the crowds there in Capernaum uh, also found Jesus, either after the disciples or with the disciples. And he's there, there, Luke records, out in this desolate place. Now, there is something interesting about the way that Luke records this. And the thing that's interesting is that Luke is really the gospel that you would turn to to find the deepest description of the prayer life of Jesus. The, you know, temptation, the uh, going into the wilderness often uh, for prayer. He is constantly, of all of the gospel writers, highlighting the prayer life of Jesus. But this is an interesting way in which Luke records this story because he does not make mention of this story of the prayer life of Christ. Mark does. Mark tells us that Jesus went out into the wilderness a great while before daylight to pray before his father, which, you know, on one hand just kind of shows us that you can't put these guys in this little nice little package and box and say that's what this gospel is about or that gospel is about. It's just the word of God. It's the word of Christ. It's the report of these men as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, uh, that doesn't seem to be the focus of Luke at this particular moment. The focus is what comes next. It says, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. In other words, they're saying, this is great. Stay here and live here with us. I mean, after all, you, you can kind of get rid of the whole medical industry if Jesus is living in your town in that kind of way. And, and uh, you know, he's a great teacher and uh, spiritual protection. And so it was a blessing to be able to have Jesus around. And so they're kind of saying like, hey, stay here. Let's create our own little kingdom here and uh, stay within our town and our borders. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. On one hand, what you're seeing is all this authority throughout this whole text. And then Jesus saying at the end of it, you know, I'm under authority. I was sent for this purpose. I must fulfill the duty that has been committed into my hands. But another thing that you're seeing here is that the kingdom, the kingdom, Jesus says, I must go and preach the kingdom of God. They were thinking, stay here, make a kingdom with us. Jesus says, no, I must go and proclaim the kingdom. And I think that's important for us because when we see these texts where Jesus is healing, casting out demons, there are minor points that we're supposed to be blessed by. You know, the reality is that the Lord can heal his children here in this life and does at times do that miraculous work. James tells us to call for the elders of the church when we are sick to be anointed with oil and that the prayer of faith will save the sick. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that there is such a thing as the gift of healings. And so the Lord can and does do that kind of work from time to time here on earth earth. But that is the minor thing that we would get from these miraculous healings of Jesus. The major thing is to understand and know that in his kingdom, when it is fully realized, there will be no sickness. There will be no pain. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse into that beautiful future 
heavenly reality that he is building and creating for all who would believe upon him and trust him for salvation. And so the kingdom of God, if we could say it in one sentence, the kingdom of God will be an evil less, a demon less, a sickness less, uh, painless experience. A lot of words there that aren't real words, but you get the drift of what I'm trying to say. And so Jesus had to go out to these other towns to preach the kingdom of God. And he was preaching in the synagogues, verse 44, of Judea going around all of Israel at the time and Galilee and uh, just teaching and preaching and in the various synagogues, the wonderful ministry of Christ, the authoritative, strong word of Jesus. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.